Tonight we go back to the 80s, to Psalm 83. From the moment we begin reading this psalm, there's a sense of urgency and a sense of emergency. We're immediately confronted by the psalmist's problems as he's encircled by his enemies. There's a ring of fire of his enemies all around him, from which he only seems to find one means of escape. But his usual go-to God seems remarkably unresponsive at this time. An array of armies, very real enemies, are coming for Israel, but heaven is silent. And that is where we pick up our first thought tonight in Psalm 83, that these are pressing problems facing God's people. Pressing problems facing God's people in verses 1 to 4. And the first of these problems is this. God appears to be distant, deaf, and dumb. Distant, deaf, and dumb. Read with me the opening verse to hear that being said. O God, do not remain silent. Do not turn a deaf ear. Do not stand aloof, O God. As he looks out at the threat closing in upon him, the people of God call to God, but there's just nothing coming back. And that's a huge problem for them and for us as believers. The wicked are on our doorstep, but where are you, Lord? What are you doing? You can hear the increased anxiety in the cry, verse 1, Oh God, and he repeated, Oh God, intervene. Step into this with us, for us, do something, anything. Oh God, hear us. And whether this is written 3,000 years ago in Israel or expressed today in the 21st century, this is a problem for God's people. When heaven appears to be silent and God seems unmoved by our problems. You see, that's problem number one. God appears to be distant, deaf and dumb. But problem two is this, is that God is unmute whilst their enemies are devious and destructive. Enemies are devious and destructive. Verses 2 to 4 are plain for us all to understand. This combined army from around the regions is dead set against Israel. Our version, do you see it there in verse 2, says they growl. It's like a roaring wildcat. Other versions have it more like a, a different kind of roaring. The roaring of a sea, the tumultuous waves in the midst of a storm. Their words and actions unsettling Israel. It's very loud. They've even entered the fight but they're taking a lashing. Verses two and three, their enemies are full of cunning and they're full of themselves. Do you see that? They lift up their heads against God and his people. Look at verse four. Come, let us destroy them as a nation so that as Israel's name is remembered no more. They wanted to wipe Israel's name off the face of the earth. You see, Israel as a nation was a kingdom that belonged to God. He had chosen them, saved them, planted them in that land. They'd flourished and grown. They'd known security and prosperity all from God's hand. He had blessed Israel abundantly. And of course, when one is successful, inevitably because of sin in our hearts, others become jealous, don't they? The powerful presence of God noted in Israel's history, the provision of so much that was good frustrated and infuriated the surrounding nations. They wanted what Israel had. 
Israel was blessed because she was a people anchored in God's salvation and God's daily provision. And that was enough to stir up the anger of the nations round about. This bitter enmity against Israel was nothing new. It went far deeper than the bitter national rivalries of the time. This rage against God and his people traces its roots all the way back to Genesis, where there had already been an attempt by Satan to cast doubt over God's goodness amongst his first beloved people, Adam and Eve. There they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They rebelled against one, the only one of God's express laws. And then they hid from him in their shame. Yet God had not finished with this people whom he loved. From that moment on, God set the pattern for the rest of humanity. God promised by means of a curse and blessing in speaking to Satan. In Genesis 3 verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From that day in Eden, there would always be two families at war in this world. The children of the woman, God's chosen people, and the children of Satan, the devil's offspring. And this rivalry, this opposition is not demarked by national borders. Even within families it would be seen. Within one family there would be two. Within one community there would be two different communities. Across our world, two worlds would be fighting, colliding one with the other. Those who are God's people and those who are not God's people, who hate God's people. Back in the 5th century AD, the famous theologian Augustine published a very helpful book called The City of God. And in that book, he distinguishes the city of God from what he calls the city of this world, the earthly city, or, or the city of man. And these two cities or societies are marked by the standards by which they live. The earthly city lives by the standard of the flesh. Whereas the city of God lives by the standard of the spirit. What ultimately distinguishes the two are what they love. We see then that the two cities were created by two different kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love. Reaching to the point of contempt for God. Whilst the heavenly city was marked out by the love of God and a contempt for self. And that is exactly what is before us again in Psalm 83. The enemies of God lining up out of self-interest and personal love to crush Israel, to fill their stomachs with the food that Israel had grown and fill their bank accounts with the wealth and trade that Israel had developed. Whereas God's people were and should have been driven by the love of God and desire for his glory alone. If you want proof that this battle of wills is not just a one-off here in Psalm 83, but one that is eternal and one that is ingrained right the way through history, let me take you east of Eden, where Cain killed Abel out of jealousy. Abel worshipped the Lord out of love and gave his best in sacrifice. Cain wanted what Abel had. Or move on to Egypt, where Pharaoh made life difficult for the Israelites as slaves. Out of jealousy, they grew in strength, so he oppressed them out of self-love and self-protection. Or to the courts of Persia, where we were just a few weeks ago in the book of Esther, 
on those Sunday mornings where the evil Haman tricked King Xerxes into writing a decree that would do away with the Jews across the empire. Why? Out of hate for faithful Mordecai and the growing influence of the exiled Jews in Persia. And we're not done yet. What about the palace of Herod on that very first Christmas? As his front door knocked and there weren't carol singers at the door, it was the wise men. And they say, we've come to worship the newborn king. And we read that Herod, in order to put an end to this, killed every child under two years old in the Bethlehem region. It's the same kind of description of Herod in Matthew 2 verse 3 as Psalm 83 verse 2. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Psalm 83 verse 2. See how your enemies growl and how their foes rear their heads. You see, news of a true king, a better king. This Jesus did not lead Herod to worship, but to war against him. He raged against a baby king. Fast forward another 33 years and the scene is repeated. Amongst those who were meant to be God's people arose a jealousy for Jesus Christ, leading to false accusals, fake trial, a scandalous death. The jealousy of the religious leaders colluding with Herod and Pilate, men whom they hated, had the Prince of Heaven hung on a cross. Two worlds collide. The book of Acts is also a picture story of a tale of two cities. The rapidly growing city of God, the kingdom of Jesus and his followers, a people that brings in people from all sorts of backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles, Samaritans, people from North Africa and beyond, all coming in to worship this king. Whilst the great powers of religion and science and politics and business and acts all reel against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very last book of the Bible is illustrative of this as well, with that repeated number seven, the seven cycles that go on throughout the book of Revelation, round and round again and again in our world, the battle between the slain lamb and his people and the bloodthirsty dragon. Psalm 83, right the way through to the first century, the kingdom of darkness is as real and always seeking to wipe out the light bearers, the good news that God's people seek to bring. And so therefore today we should not be unfamiliar with persecution as God's people. Today that same fight rages in Macrofelt. That same division is evident in our hearts, in our homes, in our families, with neighbours, work colleagues and friends, even amongst those who are watching and maybe even part of church. There's a growling, a deep anger, a hatred over God and his people there's a dangerous jealousy that some folks hold on to that comes from the devil alone. And you do all you can to remove that threat by pushing away the news of a king, of Jesus Christ, and then seek to take away the honour and tarnish the reputation of God's people. Christian friends, please see and be aware of the danger See your enemy for what he is. Don't underestimate or doubt his or her or their determination to push you away or stamp out your faith. God's enemies are devious 
and destructive. Another of the great problems that faced God's people. But secondly, notice with me tonight in Psalm 83, an analysis of the enemies of God's people. An analysis of the enemies of God's people. And there's two things that they are noted for. They are united and they are connected in verses 5 to 8. Do you notice that? They are united and they are connected. It's incredible to see the unity amongst the diversity of all these peoples. From the southeast, you've got the Edomites, the Ishmaelites, Moabites, Ammonites and Hagrites. And then to the north come the armies of Byblos, the Amalekites in the south, followed by the formidable coastal peoples of the southwest and northwest, the Philistines and the people from Tyre. And they all come together to form an unholy alliance or an axis of evil from the Edomites to the Assyrians. These are people who fought each other, who hated one another, often had nothing in common with the other. Geographically spread exactly, north, south, east and west, like compass points, every conceivable corner, all closing in on Israel. With the haunting long shadow of Assyria closing in with the other forces in the background. And that's what the psalmist wants us to gauge, the combined hatred of God and his people amongst the nations. To such an extent that former barriers are broken down, not in love, but they're united in hatred against God. But there is one obvious point here that we cannot avoid. Whilst united in hatred against Israel and God, they're also connected to Israel from previous experience. They're connected by previous experience. Each of these people groups, you can go and check this up later in a Bible dictionary. But each of these people groups have some history with Israel. What do I mean? And why does that matter, you ask? Well, it is important. Because the enemies of Israel, they are facing, have emerged from the sins of Israel's ancestors in the past. Did you hear that? They've all emerged as ancestors of Israel from the past. They really do have a past history, a family connection with Israel. Take the Edomites, for example, listed here. That means the Red Army, the descendants of Esau. Remember him? The eldest son of Isaac, who should have been the recipient of the father's promised inheritance, but he relinquished that in a moment of human passion, greed and gluttony, when his belly ruled his brain and his desires were stronger than his heart, and he sold it all to his younger brother Jacob for a piece of stew. And what was Jacob's other name? He became the father of Israel. These people had this huge chip on their shoulders all over that stew that was sold. All that Israel was, well, they thought of, that might have been ours. That should have been ours. We were the eldest. That should have come to us. And throughout history, the Edomites have shown Israel tremendous cruelty. But you see, in the midst of it all, Jacob, Israel, had deceived his father too in order to receive the added blessing. Jacob had stolen from his brother, deceived his blind father, and ruined any kind of relationship with the rest of the family. And so that anger grew and bubbled up, spreading to the related tribes, including Amalek who were to be the thorn in Israel's side. 
a bit like the stone in the shoe for Israel for the rest of their days, all the way through to Saul's reign, and then to Haman in the book of Esther again, the villain of that story, an Amalekite related to the Edomites, Esau, the one who regretted selling it all in just a moment to the brother who deceived. And then as for the Ishmaelites in verse 6, they were the descendants of Abraham's first son, Ishmael, born to Hagar, that Egyptian slave, when Abraham so desperately wanted a son, God had promised that son and said that Sarah would be the mother of that son. But you know what? Abraham wasn't prepared to wait. And so he takes this Egyptian servant, sleeps with her. They have a child. And from Ishmael come these 12 strong tribes. He had been pushed away. Abraham kicked Hagar and Ishmael out from his camp. He treated them harshly, badly. And then the same could be said for the Hagrites, again, connected to Hagar, followed by Moab and Ammon. Do you see them listed there? Who were they? Well, they were the sons born incestuously to Lot's daughters. Lot slept with his daughters in a drunken state, always looking longingly over their shoulder at Uncle Abraham, whose blessings and success were great, despite their own family failures and the talk of where they had come from. You see, the stain of these sins ran deep from generation to generation, leaving a sense of bitterness, betrayal, awkwardness, bad memories. Trace back through each of these family trees and you will see a rootedness, a connectedness to that hideous disease that creeps through every tribe. The sins of God's people in the past having a huge impact on God's people in the present. The family tree shakes because of bitter, twisted denials, failures, disbelief in God, a doubting of his promises in the past. Friends, Union Road, Le Comfort, beware. Our sins of the present will impact our family in the future. Don't you see that in your own life? Things your parents did in the past attitudes they held become our baggage in the present and parents and grandparents if you're one of those today you know the way you speak the way you address or relate to other members of the family or to the opposite sex or your husband or wife colleagues or friends your pursuit of wealth or happiness your obsession with whatever is a lesson caught and taught what do your family see in you? What sinful ways are you committed to? What self-obsessed attitudes are so real in you that you cannot but be repeated or come back to bite us in future generations? What matters most in our homes is what matters most in our homes. You see, those who rage against God's people all had history with God's people because of their previous bad experiences with God's people. Friends today, what impact are we making for good or for ill on the people nearest to us and those around about us? Let's be warned that sometimes we may end up facing this very storm of those that we once raised, those who may have been intimately connected to us. We will reap what we sow. That is what's happening in Psalm 83. 
Which leads to the third thing in this psalm tonight. The prayers of God's people for a repeat of history. The prayers of God's people for a repeat of history. And also a blowing away of the enemy. Look at verses 9 to 16. Commentator Derek Kidner says of these verses, the past comes to life here in prayer and faith. All these Midianites, Caesaras, Oreb, Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna are names of the defeated from two campaigns in the book of Judges which emphasize the weakness of God's victors. Look at the destruction of Midian in verse 9 and her four chieftains in verse 11 was won by just 300 of Gideon's men. Do you remember that story? With nothing but trumpets and jars and torches who did a smash, blow and grab raid causing mass confusion at night while panic amongst the Moabite camp who took arms against each other due to the darkness and noise and confusion and effectively they defeated themselves. God's people didn't even have to raise a sword. Whilst the evil king Caesarea mentioned here came to a very dramatic end with a very intense headache as he tried to flee the Israelite army in Judges chapter 4 only to take refuge in the tent of jail that he thought would bring safety. And she hid him under a blanket. But while he slept, jail took up a tent peg and a hammer and drove it right through his forehead leaving the Bible to state one of its most obvious lines in Judges 4 verse 21, and he died. And so we take the point, just as poor old Caesarea did, and it goes deep into our minds, I trust as well. Our God can rise up in defense of his people at any time, using anyone from anywhere at his disposal. Therefore he calls on us, he calls on, we call on God who has worked in these wonderful ways in the past, do it again, O oh God. Repeat, repeat, do it again. In the famous 1940s film starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, Casablanca, there's that often misquoted line that Bogart's character, Rick Blaine, quips to the piano player in the bar. Play that tune again you were playing before. Play it again, Sam. Play it again. And with the axis of evil and these enemies surrounding him, the psalmist of Psalm 83 is crying, do it again. Oh Lord, do it again. Rise up, defeat your enemies. Lord, we feel our inadequacies, inadequacies to face this current crisis. These familiar foes, Lord, save us. Save us as you can in our weakness. Do what you're best at, O oh God, and intervene. This believer in distress is not merely asking that these enemies would back off, but look at verse 13, that they would be blown away like tumbleweed. That God's fire of judgment, then we read on, would sweep through them like a forest fire with the breath of God's mouth setting their plans ablaze, knocking the wind right out of them. So by the end, all they can cry out at the end of verse 16 is, seeking your name, oh God, God. The author wants God to deal with them. He wants God to terrify them and reduce their power to rubble so that from these ashes they too would cry, no more, oh God, no more. We believe in you. Answer us and protect us now too. Lord, shake your enemies so hard that they will have to fall to their knees and turn to you. 
This was a prayer for God's enemies. But maybe in our experiences over these last three months of uncertainty, there is much that used to be so valuable, but now it appears to be just like tumbleweed, like chaff. Our plans are up in smoke. Our desires are blown away within just eight weeks. Our dreams or even our destinations burned up in no time at all. Is there something of a storm blowing through? Is there not something swirling past us and around us, unsettling us and lifting us off our own feet so that we have nowhere to fall but at the feet of a redeemer, a rescuer, the Christ for our salvation? Should we not be praying that those who oppose us not be brought down low enough with all the other of life's props blown out from under them so they have nowhere to turn but Christ as well? Lord, do it again. Show your power and may this world, our community, our government, our leaders, our nation, our neighbours, our church family know what God alone can do. God, save, save us. Do it again, O oh God, and hear our prayers. But leads us fourthly onto what it means to be one of God's people. What it means to be one of God's people. Well, in a world full of fear, in a nation gripped by current indecision and uncertainty, in times when we face a very real enemy, whether visible or invisible, an army or a virus, in a world that we keep hearing will never be the same again, in a community that waits upon news of the R number each day and death tolls coming down and diagnosis and distancing, what comfort do we find as God's people? What difference does it actually make to say that we are God's people? Well, throughout this psalm, we should notice that these are not just enemies of God's people. These are threats to Israel. Our God is so intimately bound up and identified with his people. He has saved these enemies. They're God's enemies. Verse 2 says, your enemies, your foes. God is connected with us. Our enemies are his enemies. Our foes are his foes. The cunning of the wicked is against your people, O God, we read in verse 3. Those you cherish. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But it's a lovely word. God's people are his cherished people. This Hebrew phrase is one of treasured possessions. It's often used, isn't it, in marriage ceremonies to love and to cherish. Husband or wife are cherished possessions. They belong lovingly to one another. God's people are people of incredible worth and incalculable valuable to, incalculable value to him. He will not take chances with them and he seeks to protect what is valuable to him. It's the same idea of Psalm 27 verse 5. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. Our God has eternal security measures put in place to protect his most valuable assets on earth. Us, his people, we are his protected ones, cherished and loved. But we're not only a cherished people, we're a nourished people. For the other simple but splendid description of us as his people comes in verse 12. Do you see it there? We are the pasture lands of God. God loved and saved Israel and gave her a place to live and to flourish. And once again we catch sight of the shepherd-like qualities of our saviour. He feeds and he waters and he cares for his people, even in their discomfort. Whilst confronted by our enemies, God sustains us. 
And in trials, we still have a God whose presence is real and whose provisions are new every morning. In the New Testament, there's a similar stress on God's protective care for his own treasured, cherished people. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell, that is the enemies around us or the virus confronting us, will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. COVID-19 or Ammonites, meeting online or running for our lives, God still builds his church. We are his sheep and he laid down his life for us. We are his bride and he sacrificed everything for us. In short, what it means to be his people. We are his, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's who we are. But as we finish tonight, let me ask fifthly and finally, who is he? Who is this God for his people? Who is this God for his people? Verse 18, the psalmist wants his enemies to know this God. Whilst looking for judgment and safety, he's calling for their salvation. He yearns that even his enemies might know God. Judgment will come, yes. God, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. But that time has not yet come. And this is a day of grace that we all live in. And these isolation weeks and days of certain desperation for some serve as a very useful reminder that one day things will not just be different, but life will be over. These are warning weeks for those who are and those who are not yet God's people. I do not believe that COVID-19 is a direct plague upon us as a result of our sin. But for whatever reason, God has shut things down, closed things off and shuttered things up that many of us hold dearest. Why? Because one day we will be without them all. These are weeks in which God is getting up close and personal and asking us, do you really know me? Do you know how great I am? Or have you been so reliant upon all those things that are now shut up, closed and shuttered? Or is your Christian connection, is your Christian identification just slipped into your back pocket like your credit card or mobile phone and you pull it out when you need it? Do we truly worship one, as this last verse tells us, is the most high? Do we comprehend the true power of his name? Do we really want God or do we just want his protection? John Piper has asked this question rather provocatively. If you could have just a good job, a good wife, a good husband, a couple of good kids, a nice car, some long weekends, a few good friends, a fun retirement, a comfortable church, a quick and easy death and no hell, would you be satisfied? Would you settle for that? You see, there are folks all over our country with that kind of faith who would say, that's fine, that sounds lovely, that's everything I need. But that is not the way of the disciple. That is not Christian belief. In fact, that is not remotely Christian. For that is getting all the good things, but setting aside our God. There's only one thing that will satisfy the psalmist, and us, the presence and power, the personal nature of our God. And this is where our spine should tingle 
For often we find ourselves asking God, as the psalmist does in verse 1, God, are you dumb? Are you distant? Are you deaf? Can you not hear my cry? Lord, where are you in this? Don't you know what I'm going through? In doing so, let me remind you of the greatest non-answer to that same prayer in all of history. And you know it well. Lord, where are you? Don't you hear me? Father, why are you so distant? For one day, many centuries after this was written, the Son of God was hanging on a cross outside Jerusalem when he too was encircled by his enemies, condemned by those who hated him. And he prayed this prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God did not answer that day. And God did not intervene. As Jesus faced the combined forces of hell that came to crush him, God did not intervene to save Jesus from his enemies or rescue him from the cross. And it was a good God who did this. But it was also good that God did not answer. For God's silence to Christ's cry means my salvation. Means your eternal hope. It means salvation from the wrath of God against sin. It means God hears our prayers as a result of heaven being shut to his own son. Was there ever a saviour like him who not only makes a way through trouble but is the way in times of trouble? And it's because he was the silent sufferer. He makes us your wretches, his treasure, his cherished ones. Who is this God? What, what kind of God is this? What kind of God would do that for you and for me? And in these restless days, remember the name, God. God most high, Lord. Lord over all the earth. And we are his. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that even when our foes, our enemies, our troubles seem to be insurmountable all around us, when our anxieties close in, and our greatest fears confront us. We thank you that we have one who had heaven shuttered to him so that we might know the openness and reception and greetings of a great God who brings us in. One who makes wretches his treasures. Father, may we know that name and love that name, and honour that name, hallow that name. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done on us, now and forevermore. Amen.